from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 2nd. Today, how a year of chaos resulted in sky-high voter turnout, and how Democrats are trying to win back rural votes in the Midwest. This was a year that was going to focus on voting rights even before the pandemic came along. Amy Gardner covers voting for The Post. We knew this because we had seen elections two years ago during the midterms where voting rights were front and center. Stacey Abrams, the Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia. Voter suppression is real. From making it harder to register and stay on the rolls, to moving and closing polling places, to rejecting lawful ballots. Beto O'Rourke, the Senate candidate who lost narrowly to Ted Cruz in Texas. Uh, Senator Cruz is not going to be honest with you. He's going to make up positions and votes that I've never held or have ever taken. He's dishonest. And because President Trump has been talking about voter fraud since 2016 and making false claims about the prevalence of voter fraud. They're sending millions of ballots all over the country. There's fraud. They found them in creeks. They found some with the name Trump. Just happened to have the name Trump just the other day in a waste paper basket. So we knew that voting rights, voter suppression, were going to be front and center. And then the pandemic hit. And, you know, we saw pretty early on some of the ways in which the pandemic could affect the experience of voting. We saw that in the primaries where states, many states were unprepared and you saw long lines or concerns that people could be infected when when they got to the polls. How have we seen that play out for the past couple of weeks and going into Election Day where there has been a sense of forewarning and preparation for coronavirus, but we are still in the middle of the pandemic as people are trying to vote? We've seen some problems, some glitches, and certainly long lines. Although the lines were at their worst in the general election in the first few days of early voting as states rolled that portion of their program out, I would say by and large that what we've seen in the general election is a vast improvement over what happened in the spring and summer with the primaries. Uh, State and local officials spent long, hidden hours preparing, buying equipment, hiring poll workers, receiving money from the private sector to help them when the federal government wouldn't appropriate election funding this year. So what I would say is that we've actually seen it go relatively well. Huge turnout, historically high turnout. Several states are already past their total turnout of 2016, and we we haven't even seen Election Day yet. And that is a win. I, I, that's a nonpartisan statement to say that it's a win for democracy when people can vote and choose to vote in this volume with all of the barriers that they have had this year. 
And honestly, the fact that you have seen this record turnout in so many places, I think that if you were to have told me that five months ago, when when the pandemic was starting, when there started to be these very acute concerns that 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 voting was going to get pretty profoundly interrupted because of coronavirus risks, that the fact that not only does it seem like that's not really happening, but that the opposite is happening, where more people than at least in the last election are turning out, I would have been pretty surprised. Me too. And I think that I learned a lot about the resolve of the American public to have their voices heard. Uh, I think I learned a lot about how important the country believes this election to be in terms of charting the nation's course over the next several years. And I also think that there's a stubbornness in the American spirit. And when, uh, you know, Americans are told you can't do something, it rankles. So there was, it's almost like because of the pandemic, as opposed to in spite of it, people rose up and took extra steps to vote. But I also don't want to gloss over the problems that there have been with voting and could continue to have with voting and especially in counting votes. We have seen a lot of concerns about the U.S. Postal Service, a lot of legal battles about whether or not states are allowed to count ballots that arrive late, even if they were postmarked on time. But then now we're seeing problems just in the delivery of these ballots themselves. I mean, there was a video posted last week of a uh, of a processing facility in Miami that appeared to show these ballots that had just been sitting around for who knows how long that weren't in the process of being delivered and raised a lot of questions that that is something that is happening elsewhere. So what do we know about whether the ballots that have been mailed in are actually getting to where they need to go? And if the Postal Service has been able to actually fulfill its end of the bargain in getting these these ballots uh, to their destination? So the controversy surrounding the U.S. Postal Service is real, and it was real. Over the summer, headlines started emerging about delays, very real delays across the country. And at the same time, we were learning that the new Postmaster General, a, a donor to President Trump named Louis DeJoy, had instituted some pretty significant policy changes. And there came to be quite a bit of speculation and accusation that those policy changes were responsible for these delays. I think the ultimate story is a little bit more nuanced than that. I uh, was on the phone on Saturday with Bob Bauer, who is the top uh, voter protection lawyer for the Biden campaign. And he told me that a lot of the programmatic changes that DeJoy implemented had actually been in the works before the election uh, and before DeJoy became postmaster. He was not as concerned about real delays as he was about perceptions among voters that they wouldn't be able to trust the Postal Service. So I think a lot of what happened with the Postal Service was about people's confidence in it as an institution. And that certainly affected people's activities and how they made their plans to vote. I mean, we are seeing that there are still many, many ballots hundreds of thousands of ballots that were requested that have not been returned yet. And that leaves the question of, you know, is it is it just that people filled out those ballots and they haven't arrived yet or what's going on with the ballots? It raises the question of whether those ballots haven't been filled out yet. And that's a enthusiasm problem for the candidates, depending on who those voters would be voting for, or they're en route and haven't arrived. And that's a problem for the Postal Service. 
we know from polling and from talking to individuals that there were quite a lot of people out there who had been planning to vote by mail and then decided not to after the Postal Service controversy surfaced. I also want to ask about voter intimidation, which was a big issue that many people were, frankly, afraid of going into this election. What have we seen in terms of things that could be described as voter intimidation? Where have we seen them? And to what extent has that played a role in people's level of comfort with actually going to their local polling place? We've seen a couple of isolated instances that look like voter intimidation. There is a picture on Twitter of a gentleman standing outside a polling location in Miami wearing camouflage and with a gun on his waist. There was the widely publicized incident over the weekend of a caravan of uh, supporters of President Trump. Look at how they're driving. Basically surrounding a Biden campaign bus in Texas and forcing it to slow down and, and even resulting in this minor collision between one of the Trump supporters and a Biden support vehicle. Did anybody see the picture of that crazy bus driving down the highway? They're surrounded by like hundreds of cars and they're all Trump flags all over the place. My understanding is that the FBI does not have any evidence of widespread plans to cause civil unrest or violence at polling on Tuesday. That doesn't mean it won't happen, but it there isn't evidence at this moment that the FBI has at least of a, a major plan. But then there are also other things that can intimidate voters and make them feel nervous about whether it's safe to go to the polls, and that includes coronavirus. So we've seen these instances uh, in recent days with early voting where um, there have been little uh, scuffles, not physical scuffles, but disagreements among voters standing in line about people not wearing masks. And it's it has raised questions about whether people are actually showing up without a mask on purpose to sort of scare off voters as a form of voter suppression. It's also tricky because the, the rules vary so widely state by state. And actually, if I'm not mistaken, most states, certainly many states, don't require a mask. And it's a divisive issue. Uh, we know that there's a lot of uh, the country that doesn't like wearing masks and refuse to do so. It's difficult because then on the other side, you have folks saying, I voted and I did not feel safe from the coronavirus while I was in there. We could see a lot more of that tomorrow. Obviously, it depends on turnout. You know, we expect millions to turn out on Tuesday, uh, millions more over and above the 94 million who had already cast ballots as of Monday morning. But uh, we don't know for sure who's turning out. We really don't. We don't know if there will be lines. We don't know if it will actually be quiet. So whether that becomes an issue that we see more instances of on Tuesday really depends on how robust election day turnout is. Amy, you know, you and I have had conversations before about the need for people to be patient on election night, to be patient in the days after election day, because in many states it could take more than just a few hours to count all of those ballots. But at the same time, we're hearing indications that President Trump might on election night, if it seems like he's ahead, go ahead and declare himself winner, that there could be attempts to kind of shape the narrative of who has won before these ballots are counted. I'm wondering what your sense is of how, like, how people are going to respond to that and particularly how the Biden campaign is going to respond to that if there is a move from President Trump or from the Trump campaign to say that they have won this race before all the ballots have been counted. 
I think the Biden strategy right now is to assure the public that their votes will be counted. Their eligible, legal, qualified votes will be counted. And I think that their strategy is to certainly urge the media, the the networks and the news outlets that call elections or have chirons at the bottom of their screen, not to let the president say, I've won. First of all, we know from our own polling on voting in September that a majority of Americans understand that the vote count may not be completed on election night and they're okay with that. So that sort of foundation of understanding is out there, which is a good thing. You know, the winner of the election, even when it's declared by networks or the associated press, those are projections. Those aren't based on actual awarding of electoral college votes. Those are based on projections that the winner has won enough states to win the required 270 votes in the electoral college. Jason Miller, one of President Trump's campaign strategists, said over the weekend that we're going to have a situation on election night where Trump's going to have more than 280 or 300 electoral votes. So no matter what they try to do, what kind of hijinks or lawsuits or whatever kind of nonsense they try to pull off, we're still going to have enough electoral votes to get President Trump reelected. And then the Democrats are going to steal those electoral votes back. And that's a false statement on many levels. No electoral votes are awarded on election night. The Electoral College doesn't even meet to vote until December 14th. But if what he means is that the president will look like he's ahead, that's also not necessarily true because we will have so many votes that are still uncounted. And if what President Trump is saying is that he's planning to declare victory without all of the votes having been counted, and by votes I mean legal, valid, eligible votes, I do not foresee a situation in which any court in America would allow him to do that. Mm. Though at the same time, it's hard to imagine any outcome of this election that doesn't involve continued litigation over how to count ballots and which which ballots could or should be counted. I mean, we just saw a lawsuit in Harris County in Texas over whether or not the ballots that were cast at a drive through voting location will actually be able to be counted. So how do you see that continued litigation also complicating this process of understanding who won? I think that it's really important to distinguish between lawsuits that set the rules for what votes count and lawsuits that seek to interpret how those rules should be applied to individual ballots. So the lawsuit in Harris County is a really great example of a an effort by Republicans to set the rules. They did not want Harris, where Houston is, uh, to have drive-through voting uh, stations for voters. The Texas Supreme Court told them, no, they can do this. It's legal. And they went ahead and did it. And then Republicans uh, again sought an opinion from the Texas Supreme Court after something like 127,000 voters in Harris County had cast their ballots this way. And again, the Texas Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to take this up. But that's very consistent with what the courts have typically done in these situations. In the past, courts have been extremely reluctant to change the rules after people have started voting. After the election, I think what you're going to see is something different, which is 
should this ballot count because I don't think this signature matches the file. And in fact, we know that the Trump campaign has been trying to obtain the signature files on record in Nevada and Arizona. And so that means that they're seriously preparing to contest signature matching requirements in states that have those requirements. We're going to go in the night of, as soon as that election's over, we're going in with our lawyers. And I don't think it's fair that we have to wait a long period of time after the election. If people wanted to get their ballots in, they should have gotten their ballots in long before that, a long time. I also think it's important to note that those kinds of battles will only happen if the result comes down to extremely closely fought battleground states. So if Donald Trump or Joe Biden wins in a landslide Tuesday night, and there's no way for either side to catch up with whatever outstanding ballots they could conceivably contest this way, then we won't see those kinds of battles. Amy Gardner covers voting for The Post. And now, one more thing. Thank you very much, Iowa. In the last days of the election, the campaigns are making a final push for rural voters. We've had a great run together, and I've been working very hard with the farmers and making them hopefully very rich. Hello, Bucks County. Donald Trump can't get his own party to deliver real economic relief for working families. I don't think he wants to. These voters were a key demographic for President Trump in 2016. He won 62% of the vote in rural and small-town America in 2016 versus 34% of Hillary Clinton's. Annie Gowan is the Midwest correspondent for The Post. The Democrats have tried to take rural America a little bit more seriously this time. And we were just trying to figure out if, in fact, they'll be able to claw back, as they say, some of those votes from folks who have voted for Obama and then moved to Trump. I'm Darwin West. I'm 77 years old, and I live in Creston, Iowa. Congressional Republican. I'm voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I just think he's a better guy all, all the way around. The Democrats are just trying to see, can we bring some of those voters back to the party? I don't like the way this other guy goes about. He's bullying around, and I decided what we need to change. While the Biden campaign has probably narrowed the gap a little bit this time, Over the long term, the Democrats really need to take rural areas more seriously, investing money in party outreach. The Democrats have kind of abandoned rural areas to the Republicans. Since the 1980s, there was a huge farm crisis and you had a a lot of Democrat support for the farmers and their struggles. Since that time, you know, the Democrats have kind of just sort of written the rural areas off. They're less densely populated. And so they focus much more on the urban vote. Well, I need to get out to the the farmer. The national polls are trending in Biden's favor, but they're they're very close in in these key areas like Wisconsin and Iowa. In Iowa, when I was there, they had a bus that was going around to all the different rural areas to kind of talk about, you know, how to get out the vote and how to vote. So they're doing things like that. I mean, they're not doing rallies, big rallies in these areas because that was essentially the message of the Democratic Party was like, okay, no rallies, you know, no traditional door knocking, but they're doing a lot of virtual 
campaigning. And so I spoke to the head of the Wisconsin Democrats. He was saying, you know, we've been able to actually reach more people virtually than we have in the past. If the Democrats are able to sort of play and give attention to these rural areas where they haven't before, that will have contributed to their win if they do have a win. Of course, the suburbs, the conventionalism would be that the suburbs, you know, how the suburbs go is going to decide the race. But I think if they can call back some of these voters that they hope to, that might also contribute to a victory if, if in fact there is a victory for the Biden camp. Annie Gowan is the Midwest correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. As we head into Election Day, we want to give you a sense of what to expect from us. We're going to have a regular episode on Tuesday afternoon, normal time. Then we will have another episode appearing in your feed very early on Wednesday morning with the latest of what we know about the count of votes around the country. We'll follow that up with another episode at the regular time on Wednesday. So yes, that is three episodes in about 24 hours. Along with that, you'll be hearing a new voice at the beginning of each episode of Post Reports. Her name is Claire, and she is a robot. Hi, podcast listeners. Stay tuned to Washington Post podcasts during election week for 2020 election results delivered to you wherever you listen. At the start of each show, Claire is going to automatically tell you election results in the state where you're located for the presidential race and for Senate and congressional races. So listen out for that. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 